This is day 181 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing Micah chapter 7, Nahum chapters 1 through 3, and Habakkuk chapter 1. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for showing us the path, the path to righteousness, the path to peace, and ultimately, Lord, the path to obedience. Because in you and through you, all these good things happen. You want to do good to us, Lord. You don't want to see evil in our lives. We also know, Lord, that this world hates you. And it is only natural that some things will happen to us in your name if we follow you. And may that be a sign for us, Lord, that the world around us hates us because we love you. Let us be people who are bold enough to share the gospel, people who can live in a godly manner that the world hates. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but Lord, we know that your paths are the right way. And no matter what happens to us in this world, we know that you will support us and you will uphold us. Help us to remember that as we go through our day today. Please bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come, and their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants, on account of the fruit of her deeds. Shepherd your people with the scepter, the flock of your possession, 
which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt. I will show you miracles. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns, and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, 
who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantelet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions, and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowled, with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey, and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses. And countless dead bodies, they stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than no Amon, 
who was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt, too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You, too, will become drunk. You will be hidden. You, too, will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers, settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? The Oracle Which Habakkuk the Prophet Saw How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, Violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists, and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people, who march throughout the earth, to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. 
They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net, and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large, and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net, and continually slay nations without sparing? Congratulations on completing two more books of the Bible. We finished Micah and Nahum today, and now we're going into a fairly short book as well, which is Habakkuk. So let's finish up what happened here in Micah, and then we'll move into Nahum. So we see in chapter 7 of Micah that this is the final response from Israel in regards to the judgment that God is going to inflict on the people. But just like last time, we see three different parties here. We see God speaking, we see Micah speaking for himself, and we see the nation of Israel at large. We see Micah's distress in what's going on to the nation of Israel. He doesn't want these people to die. He doesn't want these people to be punished, but he understands it must be done. Because like he says in verse 1, I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers, and there is not a grape for me to eat. Think about when you know, you're making something in the kitchen, like you're baking cookies or something. Personally, I like to have a little bit of the dough because that's kind of my reward for being the chef, you know? And in the same way, Micah is upset because he's not going to be able to taste the goodness of what's going on in his nation. He feels like he's missing out. And yet, at the same time, he's upset because there's no more godly people in the land. And so he knows why this is all happening, but it bothers him because he is bemoaning their sinfulness. He doesn't want them to be sinful, but he knows that because of their posture of heart, God is going to act this way. I mean, so far the entire nation, it's a universal issue. The entire nation is corrupt. It is unrestrained. They're doing all sorts of stuff that God does not approve of. Like he says in verse 3, both hands do it well. They are all in on their sin, and they are doing it very well. They are proficient in sinning. There is no justice because the princes are taking bribes, the judges are taking bribes, and he says the best of them is like a thorn hedge, which is not a good thing. They are undesirable, is the best way to put it. And things have gotten so bad that you can't even trust people in your own house. This is completely unnatural, right? 
It says you can't even trust your neighbor. The one who lies in your bosom, guard your lips from them. You can't even trust your own spouse. Where daughter is rising up against mother, there's something very wrong here. This is what depravity looks like. We've seen it many times in this judgment, haven't we? This is what it looks like to be apart from God. Things are not peaceful and great when you're apart from God, and yet this world continues to convince people that defying God and being independent from Him is supposed to make you better. That we don't need God. I'm going to break the shackles off of us from that God cannot control us, and I'm going to do what I want. And we see time and time again in the Bible, it never works. And yet, we are the fools that wander off constantly. Satan used the exact same tricks he used on Adam and Eve, and they always work because we are such foolish people. But he has hope in verse 7. He will watch expectantly for the Lord. He's going to wait and see what God will do. He will wait for the God of his salvation. My God will hear me. He has confidence that he can pray to the Lord, and the Lord will hear him. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Trusting in the Lord and repenting, that's what's going to cause them to come back. And the Lord will restore them. He has confidence in that. But he can't do it himself. He's trying to get the people to do it too. He understands, and the nation understands as well, because it could be seen as the nation of Israel doing it, saying that I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I will take what's coming to me. I will endure my punishment because I deserve it until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He promises that he's going to bring back a remnant. He promises to restore them to their land. And that's what they're looking forward to. And as usual, those who were the enemies of Israel will be put to shame as he constantly promises what he will do. So we see that in verse 10. Now, verses 11 through 20 are more future time again, more millennial kingdom, end times kind of stuff, because it's talking about the restoration of Israel, it's talking about the blessings they're going to have, how exalted they are going to be over the other nations, how the Lord is going to forgive them, so on and so forth. But when we see in verse 14, we see a comparison of God as a shepherd, and we know that the great shepherd is going to come very soon. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession. God is the good shepherd. Jesus Christ is our good shepherd. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. That is going to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So these are prophetic in nature, because this is going to be completely fulfilled by Jesus. He is going to show miracles and he is going to be the good shepherd that will shepherd our souls into eternity. And then in closing, Micah reminds us who God is, that he is the one who pardons iniquity. He passes over rebellious acts. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in unchanging love. He will again show compassion and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. They will be forgiven, cast into the sea and never to return. So Micah is showing the people that, yes, these things are going to happen to you, but don't forget that there is hope, and the hope is in God. 
And that wraps up the book of Micah. Then we go into Nahum. Now, what's interesting about Nahum is the first chapter is describing who God is, the character and majesty of God. And that's beautiful to see. And then the rest of the book is a condemnation and the pronouncement of justice to Nineveh. Now, that's interesting. So why is Nineveh being judged now? I thought that they were doing okay. I thought we just read the book of Jonah, and they all repented. Well, here's the thing. Yes, that's true. Nineveh did repent, and they did change their ways in the days of Jonah. But Nahum came more than 100 years after Jonah. So, like we have seen throughout all of human history, one generation will fix their ways and hopefully teach their children to follow their generation. But then somewhere along the line, they will be going back to their old, idolatrous, evil ways. And so God gave them one chance in the past, and they responded to it, and now he is going to declare judgment against them, and they will never return from this. The Assyrian Empire will be destroyed. Now, this is very interesting because, yes, they were utterly destroyed. And not too long ago, some people didn't even know there was a nation of Assyria because that had been a point of contention between Christians and secular people in that, well, the Bible says all this stuff about an Assyrian empire and this city called Nineveh. Well, we have never found a place called Nineveh before. We have never seen any evidence of the Assyrian Empire. So that had to be a made-up thing. Therefore, the Bible is wrong. Well, in the 19, I believe it was the 1960s, more or less, they found a gate in the Middle East that was belonging to Nineveh. And they unearthed it, and they saw writing that declared what it was. And then as they started digging deeper and further away, they found the entire city of Nineveh, and guess what? It is exactly as big as the Bible said it was. It takes a three days walk around it in order to get from one end to the other. And they're still unearthing it to this day because it's so huge. But that goes to show that God's word is reliable. Sure, we didn't find it yet, but we did eventually. So God's word is trustworthy. And then he shows us how trustworthy God is in chapter 1. Shows him that he is a jealous and avenging God. He is jealous. He wants the glory for himself. And he avenges the ones that are against him. And I love this about God, that he takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. He doesn't do it on us. He does it to his enemies. Those who are not his children are his enemies. Where we once were too. Before we were saved by grace, we were God's enemies. But in reality, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We often see this, and not even just us, but the people in the Bible have struggled with that thought too. Why do you allow evil to prosper? Why do you allow wicked people to be successful and live in ease? That's not fair, Lord. And we also see that in Habakkuk, as we're going into soon that he, he has the same struggles. Why, Lord? Why do you allow evil to win? You pervert justice. Whoa, 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 whoa. We'll, we'll get to that, but we want to be careful with that. 
So we see a beautiful illustration of who God is and his might and his justice and all these different things, including, I like verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Amen, right? He will utterly destroy wicked plans. He frustrates plans of evil so often, they don't even recognize it probably. But not only that, even if it doesn't look like he's successful in stopping them while they're on earth, in the next life, they will suffer eternal damnation. So they'll enjoy it while they have it, but when it's gone, we know where they're going, and that's terrible. We want to prevent that because we don't want to see people go to hell. We want them to repent, just like he calls us to repent. Most people won't, but we still need to try. Verse 15 says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. This is quoted later in the New Testament, being the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also this is referring to how the destruction of Nineveh is going to be good news for the nation of Judah. So certainly this is going to be a beautiful thing because Assyria is finally going to get what's coming to them, and God is going to exact his judgment upon them. So we see here that Assyria is going to be utterly wiped out by the Medes and the Babylonians. What's very interesting is in verse 3 of chapter 2, it talks about them being red. They were colored red, they were dressed in scarlet. Very interesting because they were dressed like that. Their tunics were scarlet, and their chariots did flash with steel because they would attach scythes at right angles to the axles. So this is very accurate as to who's coming to get them. And then Assyria is likened in verse 11 that they're going to be like a lion who is soon to be captured. Even though he was once fierce, he is now going to be in submission to someone else, him and his whole family. And this is actually very appropriate because if you go to the Assyrian architecture and sculptures of the day, they loved making sculptures of lions. So it's very appropriate for for this particular case, which I thought was a very interesting little fact. So I don't think we need to go any further, but we do know that Assyria has been God's enemy for a very long time. He used them to fulfill his purpose at one point but then he also declared that he was going to judge them. And so now he is going to judge them, and they will no longer return as a country. The nation of Assyria will never return, and it will be lost in history until it was unearthed fairly recently. And then we come to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a little bit after the city of Nineveh was actually destroyed. What Nahum predicted came to pass not too long after that. And about five years or so after Nineveh was completely destroyed, then we have Habakkuk enter the scene. Now in the timeline, he comes before Ezekiel. So he comes about 15 years before Ezekiel does, and before the exile of Judah. So about 20 years before Babylon comes to carry Judah into exile is when we have Habakkuk enter the scene. And he is perplexed. He is wondering why, and he's challenging God, why do you allow wicked people to prosper? 
Why is it all over the place? And Habakkuk is blaming God that he doesn't do anything about it and that he is perverting his own justice. That is a very dangerous thing to do. He is accusing God of being on the side of wicked people. God replies to him directly in verse 5. He replies by saying that he is doing something and that you won't believe it. You don't know what I'm doing behind the scenes on a global scale. I am sending Babylon to punish Judah. I am doing so many things that you don't even know. I am going to use these people for my purposes, the ones that exalt themselves and worship random things. But once I'm done with them, then I'm going to destroy them too. And then beginning in verse 12, Habakkuk is asking the next question. Why will God use wicked people to punish Judah? Why are you supporting evil people for this agenda? This is very hard for him to understand. Why would God allow Babylon, who deals treacherously with, against God directly, why would he use them to punish Judah, who is, in his eyes, more righteous? Ah, now we're getting closer to the real reason why he's so perplexed. And he's not the first one to have this problem, right? There are several people. Jonah was another one. Jonah was also in the same vein as Habakkuk. For some reason, just because they are God's chosen people, they find themselves to be more righteous than the rest of the world. But that's not true, is it? God is the only one who's righteous. We possess no righteousness of ourselves. We could be righteous if we were to completely obey God's commands. But why is Judah being judged? Because they are not obeying God's commands. So they are not more righteous than them. They're the same. They're all fallen human beings that are disobedient to their creator. So now Habakkuk is in error that Judah is more righteous than them. These Chaldeans, the Babylonians, would treat the Hebrews like fish and literally cart them away, hook them, and drag them away. They would use every means to capture them. They literally worship their weapons. And that's why Habakkuk says what he said, that they're going to catch us with their net, and then they're going to worship the net because it gave them so much prosperity and success. That's how they actually would do it. And finally, Habakkuk asks three specific questions here from verses 14 through 17. One is, Lord, are you going to tolerate the sin of Babylon? Are you going to let them off the hook? Secondly, would you allow Judah to be caught like fish? Why would you allow this, Lord? And third, will you keep silent forever? Will you do absolutely nothing? He's in a very bad position. We don't get to see how God is going to respond yet, but he's going to put Habakkuk in his place. and He's going to recognize who it is that he's messing with. And we will see a realization and a confession here soon, similar to Job. Job thought he was righteous in his own eyes. And in most ways he was, but yet at the same time, he was not perfect. Habakkuk is an error. And he will be humbled, and he will understand God better at the end of this.
So let's not throw Habakkuk to the wolves just yet. He will come around, but he needs to get over himself and get a proper understanding of the Lord he serves before he can draw a conclusion like this. And we have to be that way too. We have to know our maker so that we can understand him. That's the problem with the world today and people who use the name of Christianity. So often they think they know God, but they really don't. They don't know how he operates because they don't read his word. They don't pray to him. How are you supposed to obey a God that you don't hardly even know? Habakkuk is learning who he is, and we will get to see the realization and the revelation of when he finally figures it out, how he's going to respond. And it's the same way we should respond. With humility and praising the Lord. And we'll get there tomorrow. For now, that's all I have. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.